Hey, it's producer Michael Miracle here with a quick word of thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast. It's folks like you who make this workplace movement work. That's why we strive to highlight great authors and experts who bring phenomenal insight on how to bring Jesus into your workplace. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and coworkers, and together we'll make the I Work For Him mission a success. Thanks again for listening. Let's start the podcast. You've tuned into the fastest one hour in Christian talk radio. Thanks for tuning into I Work For Him today. As you're listening to us on so many different ways. Thanks for tuning in. If you're on the internet, listen to Red Nation Rising, Let's Talk Faith.com, iHeartRadio. That's a phenomenal way. Make sure you share this with other people that they can get I Work For Him no matter where they are in the world. If you're listening here in Tampa Bay on Faith Talk AM 570 and 910 or maybe on 1380 at night, thanks for tuning in. Just know that before the show, we pray that your faith will be stretched, that something we say today will cause you to dig deeper and to connect in what you heard on Sunday with what you do in your 9 to 5, no matter what your 9 to 5 is. Here's a question for you today. Have you gotten to the point in your life where the pursuit of success leaves you empty and wanting for more? Have you realized that your work leaves you empty, but your volunteer off-hours pursuits, they leave you filled with joy? Have you taken the time to evaluate your second half? Have you taken the quiet time to see what the Lord has in store for you as you approach Halftime. As many of you know, the book Halftime changed the direction of my life. A gift from my friend Bob, my life has never been the same since January 2004. What about you? Are you ready to ask yourself the tough questions? Are you ready to be quiet in order to ask those questions? Are you ready to move from that elusive pursuit of success into a life pursuing significance based on living in the satisfaction of your relationship with your Heavenly Father? Our guest Lloyd Reeb today from the Halftime Institute has a story you are going to love hearing. Lloyd Reeb, welcome to I Work For Him. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. It's so great to be part of I Work For Him. Yeah, it's, I got to tell you, as I said in the opening, Halftime made a huge impact in my life, changed, our, changed the direction of our careers, changed the direction in our marriage. It was unbelievable. And, and so grateful to Bob Buford that he was willing to put those words down. I have literally given away almost a thousand copies of Halftime. It is wow. it is a book that I, it just got me to think in a place that most people think maybe when they get to 50. I was 37, and it just shifted my direction. Like, Lord, I'm not going to, I'm done. Let's, let's make sure that no matter what I'm doing, I'm doing it in pursuit of significance in the kingdom. So uh, let, before we get into that, though, let me just ask you a spiritual question. So as, as the days grow quicker, and it seems like as we get older, the days grow quicker and quicker and quicker, and every me- moment seems to slip by faster and faster. How have you seen the Lord impact your life in a specific, intentional way recently, Lloyd? Well, you know, yesterday I got back from India, and we launched the Halftime Institute over the last couple of weeks in a few, in three markets around India. And, you know, it's a fascinating country that has, uh, uh, you know, layers of culture to it and, and thousands of years of history, And but there's a huge open door to engage high-capacity marketplace leaders in India that want to make a difference with their life. And, you know, just coming back on the plane, I realized that all of the, all of the years of learning and the 11,000 hours of coaching that the Lord has um, enabled me to do over the last 20 years since we founded the Halftime Institute has equipped me to be able to help people in that country to serve their peers, and that that might be the biggest thing he was really up to. So, you know, what's interesting is, um, as I get older, I, I look at spending 
more time with fewer people going deeper and seeing how God is going to use them and getting behind what he's doing in their lives. Uh, and that's the joy that I'm discovering. You know, one of the things that Bob Buford taught me to do is to keep track of where you see God at work in your life, you know, akin to your question of where have I seen God at work. So I keep a book of days now. It is a, a blank book that I buy at CVS Pharmacy in the beginning of the year. It has hopefully 300-some pages in it, and I keep an artifact each day of some way in which I saw God work in my life. And I'll tell you, if you want to finish well, if you want the second half of your life to be the most creative and productive season of your life, it's going to take longevity and endurance, and keeping track of where you see God at work is... um, an important piece of that. That is a great idea. That's a fantastic idea. I like that idea. I may even write that. Hey, today we're talking with Lloyd Reeb from the Halftime Institute. You can find out lots more about Halftime online at halftime.org, halftime.org, or you can type in halftimeinstitute.org. You'll get there either way. But Halftime is definitely a place you should be checking out online. Lloyd, as you look back on the pages of your life, when did you first experience Christ intersecting in your life? Well, you know, I came to know the Lord when I was a child, and then I remember, uh, you know, kind of recommitting my life to follow the Lord, which was different than just believing in Him as I was a teenager. But probably the first place was when I went off to McGill University in Montreal. I grew up in Philadelphia, and I drove my little um, 1973 Super Beetle Volkswagen up the highway to Montreal to go to college, and I sent up a little half-baked prayer that the Lord would use me to impact one person's life with the gospel while I was at university. And um, it was a little bit of faith and a little bit of dreaming, but, you know, what I found was that God can take your small kernel of faith and turn it into something pretty remarkable. And probably three or four weeks later, my lab partner, uh, who was from Malaysia, came to know the Lord, and called me one night and said, you're not going to believe this, but I gave my life to the Lord. And I was kind of dumbfounded. <laughs> and that's when I realized that you know, God can take what you what you do and multiply it, and that's what he's in the business of doing. Today, that my lab partner is on the board of some large ministries. He, is, he built a bank. He's affluent. He gives a lot of money to advance God's kingdom around the world. And that was the first that I really looked up and realized that God's in the business of multiplying, and if I can turn my time and talent and treasure over to Him, I can leave the results to Him, and He'll produce 100x. And that, if we just would be willing, I mean, that's it, if we just would be willing and offer up those prayers and then to be looking, just to be used and be willing. That's in my own life. That's what it's been for me. i got to just be willing. If I would just shut up and be quiet and just be willing. You know, most of our discussion today is going to focus on your halftime experience and the story of that experience that's documented in your book, Success to From Success to Significance. How did you get introduced to this whole idea of halftime? Well, I'm a real estate developer, and my business partner and I own and operate uh, retirement homes in Canada. And uh, I, uh, I took a trip through Asia with a friend and our accountant, 
and we went to Hong Kong, and we went to uh, Philippines, we went to Singapore, we went to Malaysia. And along the way, most of it was just a kind of a luxury tour, but um, in 1990, this was, this was in 1990, so um, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and we stopped in Manila to visit some missionary friends. We spent five or six days playing with kids in a slum, playing basketball and just encouraging them and telling them about Jesus and God's love and forgiveness. And then we got to our next stop, and I remember sitting on the beach and uh, overlooking the South China Sea at this beautiful resort and thinking, this is not the life I want. I had more fun last week in that squatter's village at Slum in the Philippines. And and so on the way back, I prayed to the Lord, please don't ever let my heart go back. You know, I had been all focused on accumulating wealth and buildings and and growing my net worth. And all of a sudden, I realized that at the end of the day, life is short and all those things are going to go away unless I invest my life in something that's going to outlast me. So that really triggered my journey. And then over the subsequent years, I started experimenting with what I could do to make a difference in people's lives. I didn't have the help of the Halftime Institute. And today, you know, when I was introduced to Bob Buford, we started working on this idea of how to systematically help people. So that was 20 years ago. And what we've learned so far is that people need four things. They need a process. They need peers around them. They need stories and case studies to expand their vision, and they probably need coaching. Even the fastest swimmer in the world has a coach. And I missed all those. So as a result, it took me a long time. Probably, I bet you, Jim, it took me five or six years to really start to get clear on what I could do, what my calling was. Mm. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. It took me eight because I did it on my own too. I didn't have that coaching. Lloyd, as as I read your book, it was I just loved hearing your story. You said early on in life that you were intrigued by real estate and land and and, and real estate development. How did you know the Lord had laid that passion on your heart? <laughs> you know, we grew up in Philadelphia and we went to the Jersey Shore in the summer. And I remember sitting in the back of the car when uh, we were driving home, and Dad said to Mom, "You know, the price of real estate." down at the beach is going up. I don't know if our kids are ever going to be able to afford land at the beach. Now, for whatever reason, out of the four boys, what went through my mind is this compelling thought, well, why would you wait for the prices to go up? If you thought they were going up, why wouldn't you invest in something now? So I was 14 years old. I said to my dad the next day, look, dad, I heard you talking to mom and I, uh, you know, I just kind of got into a panic, and if you would lend me some money, I would, I'd like to go down and try to see if I can buy a piece of land down at the Jersey Shore. And it was funny, because Dad took a deep breath and looked at me and said, you know, Lloyd, would you just be normal? <laughs> <laughs> would you just go play football? And uh, But he was so gracious and insightful. He, he Next weekend or so, he took me down, and I found five acres near just outside of Atlantic City. There's kind of tick-infested five acres, and he lent me half the money, and I paid him interest, which was one of the wisest things he could do is charge me interest. And um, But I remember walking out onto that land, and something inside me just exploded, that the possibilities were endless of what you could do, and that you actually can invest in something, and you could create wealth. Now, why that came about, I have no idea, other than that that's how I was created. And you know what's interesting about Ephesians 2.10? It says, for you 
and I are God's workmanship, mm-hmm. created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for me to do. And it actually says we are his craftsmanship, we are his masterpiece, we are his poetry. Think about that. You are God's masterpiece. So there was no mistake. Now, I was created as a kid that whose heart just explodes with the possibility of what could be created. And so I, I sold that piece of land later. I bought another piece How many of land years, wait, in college. I, 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 I got, since I read that page in your book, I want to ask, how many years did you hold on to the land? I think six, five or six, something like that. And did you make money? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I made like 36% return over, um, I guess I held it four years, I had a 36% gain. Okay, now that land today, what is it being used for? I think it's a house, actually. Uh, I think it's a, a, a residential house. And I haven't been back, but I did a, I did a Google Earth uh, deal, and I think somebody bought that five acres and put a house on it. One house on five acres near the Jersey Shore. That is one monstrously expensive house. There's no question. I just was wondering because, you know, the Lord gave you that. And I'm thinking, okay, what was the Lord preparing to do with that land? How many people have been blessed by that land in the last 30 plus years? I mean, that, that was an incredible thing that you got to be involved in. Well, you know, if you're younger right now, it's a really, it's a testament to what happens with the choices, small choices you make early in life. Because I didn't spend any of that. I reinvested it and reinvested it and reinvested it and then you know, had enough to be able to build my, our first retirement home and then to leverage that and so on and create freedom and then to take the freedom I was given over the last 20 years and serve other people. And that's what I mean. God multiplies it. So he took that little bit of money and he's multiplied it over and over again so that then there was freedom and then he's taken the freedom to invest in other people's lives and multiplied it over and over. And, you know, for example, I had the privilege of serving a guy named Edgar Sandoval. And Edgar Sandoval was born in Central America and grew up in a poor family, ended up in the country with $50 in his pocket and a passport. He was bright, so he got into a good college. He uh, got a Wharton MBA, went to Procter & Gamble. And when he came to the Halftime Institute, he was the head of feminine products for Procter & Gamble worldwide. And um, so... I listened to his story, and I, and I thought about what he might be good at, and I listened as he presented what he thought his mission statement might be for the second half of his life. And it just so happened that I, I had gotten an email from Rich Stearns, who's the CEO of World Vision. World Vision is a global ministry serving poor children around the world. And it directly aligned with um, Edgar's calling. And so the CEO of World Vision was looking for someone who had marketing background and a passion for the poor, maybe experienced poverty, who could be a chief operating officer. So today, Edgar has left Procter & Gamble and is the COO for World Vision. They have 49,000 staff. They move more food in a year than McDonald's Corporation. So if you think about it, God took a little bit of investment in that land to multiply it to create freedom, multiplied it over many years of learning the skill to be able to see and hear what someone's calling is and make a connection. And then it, it was a tool in helping Edgar find his place to serve and he's leveraging that over 70 million kids a year they touch. So that's what God does. And it's not just, it's not, this is not about Lloyd. This is about 
God. That's how he works. That's he, it. he does multiplication, not addition. That's it's And it's so true. And it's never up to us to do the multiplying. It's always up to the Lord to do the multiplying. Hey, today we're talking with Lloyd Reeb from the Halftime Institute. Check out Halftime online at halftime.org, halftime.org. Halftime is absolutely an I work for him endorsed ministry. You got to check it out. Halftime.org. Lloyd, here's the question though. So you're in real estate development. You start buying and selling land. You start building, uh, as you said, retirement homes. Did money ever, was there ever a temptation where that money almost came to be competing with your relationship with your heavenly father? Well, you know, I think it, it's, um, it's insidious, and it probably was at times, and it probably will be in the future. And so that's kind of a why the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's a process of continually being transformed to let the truth of the Bible reshape our thinking and our beliefs. So it, it's where you're treasure is there where your heart be also. It's where you and I are investing our time, talent, and treasure. That's where our heart is going to be preoccupied. So what happened to me early was, in some of those early experiences, I had the opportunity for God to reshape my heart and my beliefs about what really mattered. And one person asked me, uh, that was a mentor to me, asked me to make two lists. Make a list of the things you have in life that are really, really valuable. So I did. It was a pretty long list. And then he said, now, right beside it, I want you to make a list of the things you have that are priceless. And I'll tell you, it was a short list. And then he asked me, tell me what you're doing to protect them. And the surprising thing is that all of the valuable things were protected. They were insured. I had strategies to protect them. I had thought about it. But most, if not all, of the priceless things were largely unprotected. So the best thing you and I can do to, to really wean our heart off of the material things we're acquiring is, is to work at the belief level. What do I believe will be the value of these things? Value is always associated with how long you have something. And so that was a gift that someone gave me to force me to write down, what do I have that's priceless and what am I doing to protect it? And so, you know, at that point in life, I had not let my lifestyle creep up so much that I was trapped by it. It's much better to stop the growth of your lifestyle before you're trapped by it into this endless um, striving to generate cash and decide how much is enough. So I think it's important for couples that are young, and I think it's important for people who are senior executives to answer the question, how much is enough? I love that because so many of us have struggled with that. And that's really what your book, From Success to Significance, is about. It's just getting people to ask those questions. You know, you quote Bob Buford a lot in the book. Of course, he wrote Halftime. I get that. So that makes a lot of sense. But one of the quotes I love from him is that you mentioned our first half is about making a living. And our second half has the promise of being about how to make a life. How does that define your second half? Well, you know, if you were to ask me what are my goals and objectives in the first half, it was fairly straightforward. It was to grow our business and to grow our wealth and to um, train up our three little kids in the way that they should go so that when they were, not, when they were old, they wouldn't depart from it. Pretty straightforward. 
but now, when if you were to ask me if my life turned out perfectly, what would the elements be? I have a much more uh, nuanced set of things that are those long-term metrics for my life, those long-term components that I feel comprise a rich and meaningful life. And so that really is what has happened. I've gone from making a living to making a life, and it's a lot more complex. There are other pieces to it um, that play into into a journey in the second half that's rich and fulfilling. Not only can it be your most creative and productive season from 50 to 75 because of the wisdom and influence that you've garnered over the years, but it can also be the richest in terms of intimacy. Many times your first half squeezes out intimacy, and so you have the opportunity to pursue that in your second half. Well, and I think just to make a point on my side of this, what I work for him is all about is getting people to do, to make a life out of the first half and the second half, because we can make a life in our careers before we make that shift. We can actually be making a difference if we just would understand that mindset that our workplace is our mission field. We don't have to get to halftime and go, boy, and live with regret. We don't want to get to halftime and go, boy, I wish I had done some things differently. We can make those changes now. Now, it still may mean that you're going to have a different direction in the second half, but is it possible to make a life in the first half? <laughs> Yeah, it takes a lot of discipline, and very seldom is someone willing to stop and look up and really think about where they're going, and if so, it is a wonderful thing to see somebody in their 20s or 30s who is living on purpose and not just reacting to the the norms of our culture to try to get a little bigger house, try to get move up the food chain corporately, um, you know, to really think more holistically about what's my calling what do I want at the end of the day? I feel like Halftime and the Halftime Institute is a remedy, not a strategy. And so if you, you wouldn't recommend to your kids to pursue success all with all-out pursuit until some point in midlife and then freak out. Instead, yeah. they can pursue their calling along the way. Yeah, right now. Today we talk with Lloyd Reeb. He is with the Halftime Institute, where you can find out all kinds of things about the Halftime Institute on the website, halftime.org. And we're really hearing about his story, how the Lord grabbed his life and moved him from success to significance. And the subtitle on his book is When the Pursuit of Success Just Isn't Enough. And that story, could that tagline could describe tens of millions of people. Lloyd, welcome back to I Work For Him. Thank you, Jim. You know, you said in your book, Success to Significance, that choosing to pursue God's calling on your life is going to entail some financial risk. Is that always the case? Well, I think that some people are called, actually, to a, a life of philanthropy or generosity. And in that case, they actually grow their wealth. They probably earn more than they would have otherwise if they're focused on it. But the risk is, eventually, if that's their calling, they're going to give it away. I remember watching Bob Buford give his money away. He told me he hoped his last check would bounce. You want to talk about (laughs) financial risk, you know, go through your 70s watching your net worth drop as you give it away. It takes courage and faith. And then for the rest of us, I think ultimately you and I have to ask one question. Is there a limit? to what I'll spend on myself? That's a yes or no. And back in 1992, Lynn and I stared that question down and eventually answered yes. 
There is a limit to what we'll spend on ourselves. Once you do that, it begs the second question, which is, what is it? And that is where the risk and that's where the, the cost comes in. What is the limit to what we'll spend on my... I will spend on myself. So we decided on that back then. We set a limit, and along the way, we've kind of stuck to that, and we measure it every year in detail and not sort of in a stringent lawyer kind of a way, but really with the joy that then God can take the excess and the freedom comes with living within our limits um, and multiply it. So I've told our family that this is not about giving up stuff to follow God. This is about trading up. We're trading stuff that will only last for 20 or 30 years for things that will last for eternity and that will bring more joy to our family and more happiness and more reward. And at the end of the day, we're going to be better off 20, 30, 50 years from now than we would if we had invested in other ways. So it always involves, following God always involves risk and sacrifice because, frankly, He doesn't need me. He wants me. This is a journey of the heart. Well, and it's risk and sacrifice mm, from a worldly perspective, but not from a God perspective. I mean, and, and it's understanding we may give, I love that line, it's tweetable, not giving up, but trading up. That is a powerful line. And and to ask that question, Crown Financial Ministries, really we asked that question in 99, Martha and I did as we went through Crown Financial Ministries, we said, okay, how much is enough? Are we willing to cap our wages? Are we willing to cap our spending? Are we willing to reduce our spending and live within our means so that we can be generous and then stick to that for the rest of our lives while the rest of our friends buy bigger houses, more expensive cars, faster cars, whatever? And, and but you're so in that case, yeah, do we make some financial sacrifices? Sure, but did it really cause us any pain? Not really. I mean, every once in a while, you you just go and use somebody else's really expensive car or their house and just live vicariously through them and their payments. All right. So is it true? Here's a question for you, because I've I've wondered this. Is it true that everybody that approaches their 40s and their 50s is going to go through one of these halftime success versus significance questioning periods? I mean, does everybody go through that and go, what is my life really all about? Am I wasting my time? Do people, does everybody ask that question, Lloyd? Well, I don't know, obviously, because I haven't met everybody. But I, I, <laughs> okay, fine. You know, I I know that there's a huge percentage of the population now that are faced with this that wouldn't have been before. There's kind of four reasons. One is longevity. You know, the average life expectancy in America a hundred years ago was forty-seven or forty-eight. Today, when you reach forty-seven or forty-eight, you have thirty bonus years. If you've done something for twenty-five years, when you reach fifty. You are ready for a change. It may not be a total change of what your skill set is, but it may be a change of the pace, a change of the setting, um, a change of the desired results that you have. But the idea of spending another 30 years doing the very same things, very few people are interested in that. Secondly, we as a generation have watched people experiment with the relatively new idea of retirement. And frankly, for many of us, the idea that our best years are behind us is not very interesting. To figure out how to redeploy our skills, our experience, our wisdom in the second half to make a meaningful contribution, rather than RVing around the country in pursuit of the ultimate soft yogurt, it just seems much more interesting to us. And then, because we're knowledge workers now, you know, historically you couldn't work past a certain age because you were tired. My grandfather worked in a glass factory downtown Philadelphia. He never owned a car. He never took a family vacation. He worked six days a week. I'll tell you, when he finally stopped, he was tired. 
And, you know, I'm 55 now, and I feel just as strong. I still work out with weights three times a week. I bike three times a week. I got back from India late on Sunday night. I got up on Monday Monday morning, and I felt fine. I feel like I have not only this experience and wisdom now at 55, but I also feel well. And that hasn't historically been true. So when you converge those things, that's why this is a new phenomenon in human history. It doesn't exist all over the world, but it exists in most developed countries. Now, not everybody's interested in pursuing something significant, but a Harvard study showed that more than half of people um, from 60 and older would change their career if they could find something that brought more meaning and purpose. Right. Well, and that's really what the millennial generation is all about. They want, they want to know right up front, hey, does what I'm doing make a difference? Is it really going to impact those people around, uh, around me? They're, they're asking for, I want to know the truth. They, they only believe things that are real, transparent, vulnerable. They, they want real. And the next generation, who knows what the generation Z will be like. Let me ask this question though. So if, if many of us are going to be facing this, what we would call the halftime journey, this, this, this shifting in our paradigm from pursuing success, which is elusive, to pursuing significance and making an impact right where we're at, wherever that may be. Is there a process to this? Is there like stages that you got to go through? Yeah, actually, you know, what's interesting I found now after 20 years of helping people with this is that um, every person I've helped through this midlife renewal has a unique calling, a unique um, platform on the other side. They're doing something that's totally unique. And yet each of them goes through a similar process. The first piece is just discovering a vision for what could be and what, what should be in your life in the next season. And the second is kind of a deep dive exploration of what you've been given, who you are. The uh, It's more akin to archaeology than architecture. And you know, it's a it's a journey inside your heart of guided reflection. And then the third is to take that new insight you have about yourself and to go explore and in, in, in gain diverse exposure to what's out there in the world. Very often, if you've been a teacher, you've been stuck in that environment for a long time. If you've been a dentist, you've been heads down taking care of people's teeth every day, talking to the same group of employees over and over again but you may not have explored what is happening out there with foster care or with education or meeting people's physical needs or, um, you know, the environment that may be an area of your passion. And then the last is building a plan for enduring impact. In other words, you have to find a new equilibrium. And so you go through a renewal curve that's like a big Nike swish. You know how Nike's, Nike's logo goes down and then it goes back up? And uh, that's what happens. That's what midlife renewal looks like. It goes down because there's a bit of detox from, you know, the success of your first half. It goes down because you enter into a season of confusion when you've been competent at what you were doing for a long time. If you're in your 40s or 50s and then when you start exploring what's next, it's not always comfortable. You know, one of the first things I did, Jim, was... uh, I mentored prisoners. One, an old guy living in one of our retirement homes came up to me one night as I was walking down the hallway, and he said, Lloyd, I've been thinking about you, young man. And on Tuesday night, you're going with me to prison. <laughs> and so I said to him, well, Mr. Kerr, you know, I don't do prison. It's not my people group. And um, he said, Tuesday night, you and me, prison. So I went. And I watched this 78-year-old man bring 
hope and compassion and God's truth into the darkest, most despair-filled room I'd ever been in my life. There were 45 prisoners, some of them lifers, and I just watched. I had to bite my cheek to keep from crying as I watched him do what he was obviously called and created to do. Hmm. And so at the end, as we drove home, I said to him, Mr. Kerr, what could I do? He said, I said to him, I don't care what it costs me, I want some of what you have, so what could I do? And he said, well, just come here on Thursday afternoons, take Thursday afternoons off, and come down and mentor some of these guys. So I did. I went down for six months, I mentored these prisoners in the afternoon. Well, it turned out I was terrible at it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was a bad day in prison when I showed up. <laughs> you know? And the only good thing is they felt better when I left, you know? Yeah. Now, that's, that's do you good. think that was a waste of time? No, because it was incredible for you. Hey, I just want to tell people who we're talking to today. We're talking today to Lloyd Reed from the Halftime Institute about his journey from success to significance, a book that he wrote. Make sure you check him out online on the Halftime Institute website, halftime.org, halftime.org. Okay, so if you realize that mentoring men in prison wasn't your thing, how did it get you to understanding mentoring men in business and helping them through the halftime journey was your deal? Yeah, so that's a good question. I could see there were some parts of it that I was good at. I was good at asking questions. I was actually a pretty good listener. But I had I had no frame of reference around their world. One day I was driving home from the prison, and I realized I said, you know, Lloyd, who do you think you are? You walk into this prison with a big swagger, and you tell these young men what they should do, and you tell ask them why they haven't figured this out. And last I checked, your mom is not a prostitute. Your dad never punched you in the face. No one shot at you on the way to school. So who are you to come in here and give them all these smart answers? Why don't you just go in there and listen and learn a little bit? That's what was going on in my head. And so that was incredibly valuable because part of this renewal at midlife is to detox from some of the hubris, some of the pride that comes with the success we've had, and to reshape our heart. I mean, I had to learn to to really put their interests ahead of mine as opposed to just serving them so I would feel better. There's a big difference between volunteerism and a calling, and a calling always has other people's interests first. I love that. A calling has other people's interests at first. And, and it's understanding that, because if it's a calling, it's from God. And, and God's calling in our lives is never going to be self-centered. It's always going to be other-centered, because that's the way Jesus lived. He lived other-centered his entire life. You know, you wrote one thing in your book, though, Lloyd, that as you went through your halftime journey, you left your wife out of the journey. And, and there's some regret to that. Well, why is it? Why should you? Why should you have had your wife walking alongside you during this? Well, you know, I thought I was just like a career move. I had been developing real estate. I had been blessed with that. And so, you know, no big deal. I'm just going to stop doing that, and I'm going to start doing something else. And I didn't realize that that has huge implications for her, and that has the potential really to be something where we get on the same page at a deeper level of understanding of each other. And uh, that I would have the privilege of take the, taking the kids on this adventure of faith as well. Looking back now, I realize that um, not only did I need her intuition and insights more than I gained, than I, than I asked for, but that I wasn't even thinking about what her calling was, and I didn't even realize the implications it would have for her kids. I was, unfortunately, focused on me. 
I wanted my life to be more significant. I had been blessed with financial success. I was going to figure out what God had created me to do and go do it. Now, I'm just glad we didn't sell our business because it's been a big part of my platform. So that's one mistake I, I thankfully didn't make. I think that was just God's hand of goodness so often. The platform you have is the one you need. But I, if I were doing it again... I would do what I counsel people to now at the Halftime Institute is to go home and say, honey, you know, we have the privilege to really think about the second half of our life and plan it together. And I would like to do that with you. I'd like to put your interests ahead of mine. Mm. And then include the kids. If you have adult kids, they've got way more wisdom and insight they can provide into your life if you will help them by opening up in the areas where you're confused. We're talking today with Lloyd Reeb from Halftime Institute. Check him out online at halftime.org, halftime.org. Lloyd, you get kind of controversial in your book, From Success to Significance. You actually said in there that many Christians take offense to this idea that we should do life planning. How does a Christian do life planning without getting in the way of God directing our steps? Hmm. You know, in Proverbs 14, it says, a wise person gives careful thought to their ways. And then, in Galatians 6, verse 4 and 5, if you read the message translation, which I sometimes do just to give uh, disrupt my thinking, it says, give careful thought to who you are and the work you've been given and sink yourself into it. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of us must do the creative best we can with our own life. So there's an argument for thoughtful preparation and planning, and yet if you turn a few pages over in my Bible, I find it's saying, well, who are you to say you're going to go here and there and buy and sell and get gain? You can't even say what you're going to do this afternoon. So what's up with that? And then in First Peter it says, each of you have been given certain strengths, be sure to use them. Then turn the page over a few pages and it says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. We- yeah. So what's up with that? So here's what I see in those verses, and this is something to reflect on and maybe talk about over the dinner table with your family. Um, I think we're asked to live in a tension. The tension is that, on the one hand, Jesus said, I am come so that, and then he had a single statement that defined his purpose of being on this planet. And then they say he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he had a strategy to execute on his mission or his calling. Yet, I find him getting up every morning and going in prayer to his Father, looking for wisdom and insight for the day. I find him responding spontaneous to a woman who yanks on his jacket who needs help. So if Jesus could live with the tension between having a clear sense of his calling and a strategy to execute it, and daily dependence on his Father for wisdom, and the willingness to respond spontaneously to the promptings of the Spirit of God, can I live with the tension between those two? And then when it comes to strength, you know, I have been given the strength of thought leadership, so I help people think through things that are complex and gain clarity. And yet I am introverted. So, you know, if you have ever done the Myers-Briggs test, the first indicator is are you introverted or extroverted? In other words, do you gain energy being alone or energy being with others? And I gain energy being alone. And yet I'm called to talk, and, you know, the last 10 days I was in India with people from morning till night, So I would wake up in the morning, and I am fully prepared to use the strengths God's given me. 
but I will never have the emotional capacity to do what I'm called to do. So every day I would say, Lord, help me have the emotional and spiritual capacity to do what you've called me to do today, even though I don't have it. And so I bring my strengths, but he is always the one that makes up the difference, and it's the power of the Spirit of God that produces results. And so in John 15, we're told, unless you stay connected to the vine, without me you can do nothing. It's not without me you can accomplish a little bit less. It's, a, it's a, without me you can accomplish nothing. So there's this tension, this beautiful tension, between careful thought to your ways and daily dependence and spontaneously responding to the promptings of the Spirit of God. And it all comes back to this. Something written in the 12th century, that God doesn't need me, he wants me. He, he, he does not lead Lloyd Reed running his errands today. It's my privilege to partner with him, and this is relational. He says, I will guide you with my eye. So this is about eye contact. He doesn't need me just running his errands. This is a journey of the heart. He will use me, but he says, I'll guide you with my eye. So this is relational. Right. And that's really what the Halftime Institute helps people see those things and learn to get more relational with the Lord and learn to hear His voice. In 30 seconds or less, give a good plug on who should be calling Halftime right now and getting involved. Well, if you've been successful and you find yourself at a point in midlife where you really want the second half to count, you're not sure if you should sell your company or bail from a corporate CEO role or COO role, you have some financial freedom, and you just don't know what the common mistakes are, you don't know what the process is, you don't have peers around you, you don't have coaching, then the Halftime Institute Fellows Program is completely designed from top to bottom for you, and it's designed to help your spouse go on this journey with you, and it's designed to help you build a thriving family in the next season. Lloyd All Reed. of that over the course of one year. Lloyd Reed with Halftime Institute. Thanks for being an I Work For Him. Thanks, Jim. Halftime.org. Halftime.org. It is a place you need to go. And I Work For Him endorsed ministry. Absolutely. You listen to I Work For Him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower. My workplace, it's my mission field. But ultimately, I work for him.